following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys, do you know how to identify a black widow spider? Do you know what to look for when you, know, you see a little spider around? You're trying to determine if it's venomous or not. What, what are the marks of a black widow spider? Well, it's black, right? But it has red on it. That's right. It has a red hourglass on its back. And if you see that, or even something that just looks like that, you know you have to go get mom or dad to kill that spider right away. You have to kill it and kill it quickly before it bites somebody and poisons them, or perhaps you, or someone else you love in your house. Well, the sin of immorality, as Christ is teaching us this morning, and the subject of our text today and of the seventh commandment, it's kind of like those little venomous monsters. You need to know how to identify it and then how to kill it. How to throw it away from you before it harms you or someone you love. Indeed, this particular sin, arguably more than any other sin in our day and age, is destroying not just individuals and not even just families, but entire cultures and civilizations. Historians argue that it was the the decadence, the immorality of Rome that really caused its downfall. And aren't we seeing something similar, at least analogous, happening in our own culture today? Well, this morning, as we come to the second of five points regarding the moral law of God that Jesus is is preaching on in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, this point about the seventh commandment is so important that Christ actually gives two statements to it. The first in verses 27 to 30, and then the second in verses 31 and 32. And he's doing this as he continues to show us how the law of God is spiritual in nature, how it goes down to the very depths of our being, right into the heart of our hearts. It's to be applied there in the deepest recesses of who we are and what we're about. And so today, as we open up Christ's teaching on the seventh commandment, I will seek to show you that repentance unto life remedies the problem of immorality unto death. We're going to identify the spider and then see how to kill it. Repentance unto life remedies the problem of immorality unto death. Our text this morning forces us to confront the great problem of man's sin, which leads to eternal death. Jesus mentions hell twice in this passage, does he not? But Christ doesn't leave us to face that problem on our own. As represented and pictured for us in the table that's before you and me, even this morning, he blazes the way of life for us. He makes a way for us to live and not to perish. And he carries us through it along that way. For he knows that we cannot take one step to remedy or fix our situation on our own. Again, repentance unto life remedies the problem of immorality unto death. 
We'll consider the text then under two headings this morning. First, the problem of immorality described in verses 27 and 28. The problem of immorality. And then secondly, the remedy of repentance in verses 29 through 32. The remedy of repentance. So we're going to start with the problem and then we'll look at the solution. I think that makes some sense, doesn't it? And Christ seems to follow that pattern as well. First, the problem of immorality. There's two layers to this. The, the, the basic or surface layer is that the Pharisees have an immorality problem in verse 27. And then we get down under that surface as Jesus unmasks it. And we see that there's actually a deeper, true immorality problem that each of us confront in verse 28. So consider the Pharisees' immorality problem. We see here what seems like a statement of just the seventh commandment. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But he's actually not so much quoting the seventh commandment out of Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, but rather he's quoting the bigger body of the rabbi's teaching about the seventh commandment. He's saying, you have heard it said to the ancients, to those of old, if we're uh, referring back to the first statement from the other week where he's talking about murder. But again, in that context, you shall not commit adultery. And what the Pharisees had done and what Jesus is confronting by putting those words out there now is that they had conveniently narrowed the definition of uh, a seventh commandment violation, what it looks like to commit adultery. They've conveniently defined it solely, strictly, merely, and only as the outward act of immorality, of actually doing the deed. To give you an illustration, I worked at a bookstore when I was in high school, and we would have some customers, quote-unquote, because they never buy anything, who would come to the store. They'd get a big pile of magazines. They'd plop down on a chair, and they'd read all the magazines and then put them back on the rack and go home. Now, were they breaking any rules? Were they stealing technically? Well, if you limit the idea of stealing to walking out the doors with a magazine without paying for it, then no, they weren't stealing magazines. They were putting them back where they found them, right? but they were breaking the spirit of, the, of, a, of having a store in the first place. You go to a store to maybe peruse items, but not to read them in their entirety and then put them back on the rack. That's just as much stealing as walking out the door with it hidden away in your bag without paying for it would be. Do you see, do you see the connection I'm making here? And so we actually did have a rule then that you couldn't do that. And we would ask customers to either buy the things or put them back and leave and not read them all there in one sitting. Well, Jesus is showing that the Pharisees have done something similar with the seventh commandment by conveniently limiting it to just the outward act of immorality. It's not enough to regulate behavior and think that then, okay, I'm good. I've, I've kept the law. No. Are you after the fabric and character of your heart, of what's going on inside, not just with the seventh commandment, but with any of God's laws, with, with anything that you know to be right and true. We might say nice things to our neighbors, but do we really have a regard for their well-being? When push comes to shove, are we going to show up? And that's what Jesus is confronting the Pharisees with. He's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. You think that's all it is. Well, you have another thing coming. 
And so having shown the Pharisees' immorality problem in their misunderstanding and superficial application of the law, he then proceeds to show us the true immorality problem in verse 28. Look at 28 with me. He says, but I, again, I myself say to you that everyone, any man who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That word for woman is the same word for wife, and so perhaps Jesus is making a point, building on the Tenth Commandment here, that even if you covet your neighbor's wife, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. If you've broken the Tenth Commandment in your heart, then you've broken the Seventh. You see, he's not deviating from Moses. He's just making the connections the rabbis refuse to make as he's going beneath that superficial le uh, level. He's retrieving the true definition. He's, he's winning it back, the true definition of a seventh commandment violation. And he says here that even the lustful look, the persistent stare or gaze with desire, forbidden desire, the will to keep up that look, and then the fantasies that take place in our imaginations, all of those things, our Seventh Commandment violations, even if technically you don't act on it in outward deeds. Now, he's not introducing anything new here in this example. Instead, he is reviving this connection between Seventh and Tenth Commandment. He's teaching his disciples what the law actually taught, that they might then know the depths of their sin and thus of their need for a remedy. But before we get there, I want you to notice how Christ puts this. It's profound. He gives us a progression of sin to the heart. Look at verse 28. Where does he begin? He says, everyone who looks. This is describing not just a passing glance or like literal seeing. I mean, it's not a sin for you to literally see somebody else, male or female. But it's that, that look that has a fixation, an unhealthy obsession even uh, a reveling in something that's forbidden or not yours, an unchaste, continual looking. He starts there with the eyes. Boys and girls, your eyes are a portal into your heart. That's what Jesus is showing you. In fact, I think in uh, John Bunyan's Holy War, the city of man's soul, which is an allegory for a man's soul, uh, I think one of the gates is called the eyes. And because that is the case, your eyes are the gateways into your whole being. What you set before your eyes will affect then how your heart is shaped. Are you setting the word of God before your eyes and feasting upon it? The goodness and beauty of Christ? Or are you setting frivolous things before your eyes? Uh, whatever they may be. And so he starts there. Well, that willful look, that plan then... To look goes through the eyes and shapes the heart. As Jesus brings this heavy teaching that would have shocked and awed his audiences, his hearers. He says, uh, he who looks or everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We see this anticipated at the very beginning of scripture. What happens in the Garden of Eden? Before Eve takes that forbidden fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what are we told? We're told that she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was good for food and to make one wise. And then she proceeded to act on it. 
But there was sin even on dwelling on disbelieving God and dwelling on the fact that I could have that. Forgetting that God had said, you shall not. And then 2 Peter chapter 2, 14 tells us uh, even further here in describing false teachers, Peter describes them very interestingly. Remember, he would have been here when Jesus said these words in Matthew 5. He describes false teachers as having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin and as being men who love the wages of unrighteousness. Jesus has just gotten done telling us what a disciple looks like, someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, someone who desires that, while a false teacher, a sinful, wicked man, loves the wages of unrighteousness. His eyes are always filled with looking around, scanning the crowd, trying to figure out how he can perpetrate another sin, filled with adulteries, with forbidden desires, is what we're being told here, filled with things that shouldn't be there. And then Job 31 gives us a picture of a righteous man, the opposite. Dr. Pipe is going to get there probably in months and months from now in his sermon series through Job. But Job says to God as he's, as he's asking God, pleading with him, why is this happening to me? All the trials he's facing. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a young woman? If my step has turned from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, and he goes on. And so Job understood this. This is an ancient teaching, and it's one that makes perfect sense to us. What you look at is going to affect your heart. And perhaps, men, if, you've, if you're like me, you enjoy good movies, or what you thought were good movies, and maybe many years ago, either before you were Christian, when you were a baby Christian, you watch a film and you thought it was really funny and then you said, oh, I kind of want to watch that movie again. You go back to it and you're horrified at what you see. And your, your, your conscience has been made more tender and you think, how could I have ever enjoyed this? How could I have ever found any entertainment or usefulness in this movie? What, what has changed in you? What have you been putting before your eyes in those intervening years to make you a different man. You've been putting the word of God before your eyes. The beauty and splendor of Christ. And guess what? When you behold the Lord of life. And his beauty and his glory. Then all those other things in the world. Will become so. Not just, uh, not just of petty value. But useless. And you recognize even dangers you didn't see before. You're beginning to identify that black widow spider with greater effectiveness. You know what to look for. You know exactly, even instinctually in your spirit, what is good and what is false. Jesus is shaping his disciples this way. In the first two verses of our text then, we've seen the problem, the problem of immorality. The Pharisees, they were dead wrong in their belief that the problem was just skin deep, just having to do with the actual deed at the level of the outward man. For the true immorality problem, as Christ has explained it here in verse 28, is fundamentally a heart problem. It's a heart problem. It's a problem of the inward man, not just of the outward man. But he gives hope then. In the, in the next verses, he says some hard things. But brothers and sisters, they're full of the hope of salvation. He gives hope by commanding the remedy, by promising salvation just in a very like manner to what we read in Jeremiah chapter 3, of putting the possibility of repentance, the invitation of repentance before his people, describing it for them. 
And so in verses 29 to 32, we'll consider the remedy of repentance. The remedy of repentance. In 29 and 30, Jesus speaks of radical repentance. And then 31 and 32, he gives a remedied understanding of life in a particular example, dealing with an application of the seventh commandment and marriage. First, in verses 29 and 30, as we consider this radical repentance, look at what Christ says. Two very similar statements. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then he continues, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Christ is not literally commanding them to gouge out their right eye or cut off their right hand. Rather, what he's giving here is a picture of what we call repentance unto life. Repentance unto life. Turning to life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance unto life as a saving grace. That is a gift of God. Not something you make up yourself. A saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Jesus is especially describing in these two verses what it looks like to endeavor after new obedience. What does this then look like in your life? And he uses what we call hyperbole, an exaggerated statement. He says something, boys and girls, that sounds crazy. If your mom and your dad said, go gouge out your eye and cut off your hand, you would think something was deeply wrong with them, wouldn't you? That's a crazy thing to say. Well, Jesus is not going crazy. He's using hyperbole to illustrate for his disciples what repentance looks like. He uses this hyperbole, this crazy statement, to make the simple point that endeavoring after, pursuing new obedience may include forfeiting, that is, giving up something you love. Beloved privileges, perhaps. Maybe throwing out beloved possessions or even tools, or cutting off people who are destructive to you and your family and your church. Colossians 3.5, Paul picks up on this. He says, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. What do you love? Do you love... Your cell phone and social media access. Do you love money and having lots of money and thus working hard for money? Do you love television, movies, TVs, certain kinds of books, whatever it is, and yet you find that this thing you love just almost always because of your own weakness or just the ease of access leads you into sin, the sin of neglecting your family to make lots of money instead. The sin, perhaps, of unchaste thoughts as you see the perverse movies and TV shows that continually just are presented to us. It seems like that's all that's offered anymore. Or perhaps the sin of just wasting untold hours of time at watching like silly cat videos and, 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 and frivolous things on social media. 
Brothers and sisters, Christ is giving us, he's giving us a picture of what it means to endeavor after new obedience. Take that thing, no matter how much you love it, no matter how useful it is to you, and set it aside. Throw it out. Get rid of it in your life. Now, I can't dictate to you as a pastor, as a religious leader, or even as a friend, whether or not you should get rid of your television, or never go to the movies again, or not read certain books. That's not my role. I can give you wise principles, but it's up to you, brothers and sisters. It's up to you, boys and girls, particularly boys and girls, as you speak about these things with your parents, to figure out where the line is for each of you. One person may be able to watch certain things and not be affected, and another person may not be able to watch those same things or read those same things. But the point is, the point stands that Christ says... If you know of something, no matter how useful or valuable to you, even your right hand or your right eye, get rid of it if it causes you to sin. And what is the motivation? Why do this? Because the reality of God's wrath against sin, the reality of hell, the physical torment, the conscience torment of hell is so serious, so dangerous, so urgent that you must do everything you can to avoid it. That's the argument Christ makes. We don't like that argument nowadays. We find it to be not very nice. But that's exactly what Christ says here. He says, it's better for you to go without that prized possession, that beloved thing in your life, than for your whole body to then be thrown into hell, where it's going to be burned with an unquenchable flame where it's going to be eaten alive forever and ever by a worm which never dies. These are other pictures scripture brings in to describe what hell looks like for us. And Christ believes and believed and taught this idea of the danger of sin and immorality. Why? Why should I give rid of the thing that I delight in so much? but yet causes me to sin because hell is real. Separation from God is painful. Indeed, it's torment. We may be afraid to appeal to fear to encourage repentance. We don't want to have fearful children. We don't want to terrify people and horrify them. I get that. But that's precisely what Christ does here. And he has all authority to do it. And I understand that he's different than we are. But he gives us his words then to instruct those others whom he brings into our orbit that we have responsibility over, particularly parents, your children, or Sunday school teachers, the kids in class. And and so don't shy away from setting before them the harsh consequences of sin. The pains of self-denial, this is another picture or or lesson that Christ is giving us here, the pains of self-denial, even of cutting off your hand, gouging out your eye, that, that picture, it's still... Not as bad. It's nothing compared to the pains of hell. No matter how painful it is to lose your cell phone, no matter how inconvenient it would be not to have a computer at home or or to have a filter that makes it more difficult to get to the websites you use for work or whatever it is, no matter what inconvenience faces you, yet it's worth it. How much worse would it be to fall into sin, to bring dishonor upon God and His name, or ultimately to persist in rebellion and be cast into the lake of fire. 
Nothing that we're asked to give up today can rival that. Physical torment is a feature of the conscience experience of hell. There is unending, excruciating pain. So though Christ is using a picture here for us, yet there is a literal truth that uh, we teach in this church and in all PCA churches that at the resurrection, believers will be raised up to glory and they'll be reunited with their bodies. But unbelievers will be raised up to be cast down and judged in hell. And they're going to be reunited with their bodies and they're going to experience that pain and that suffering uh, for all eternity in their bodies. They're not going to be annihilated. It's not just going to be a spiritual thing um, or a a, a non-physical thing, but rather... God is just, and he is just and faithful to punish sin. But then positively here, and I want to end on this positive note as we consider Christ's teaching of hell, Christ requires today only that which is to our advantage for eternity. Christ requires today only that which is to our advantage for eternity. Romans 8, 13 puts it this way. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But... But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Christ is not simply scaring his disciples and saying, you better get that get out of hell free card. He's actually setting before them a picture and a promise and a hope for life and life eternal. And that's the great and glorious message that he brings is that he's made this way for us. You lay hold to that promise of life. Do you have faith in him? Do you trust him to put into your life only those things which are going to fit you for eternity? Follow after him. Trust in him. In faith. In faith that by his righteousness, by his wounds, you will be healed and welcomed into God's immortal and eternal heavenly kingdom to enjoy him forever. There's one other thing I... Mentioned it in passing, but I mentioned that we could apply Christ's words here even to people in our lives who cause us trouble, who lead us into sin. And that's perhaps the most difficult thing to hear in, uh, in our culture of idolizing friendship or certainly in our large families, in our tight-knit group here where we love each other all so much. But isn't it the case that there comes a time, and I've talked to many a wise father who's been just beat up by sons or daughters that have gone wayward when you have to cut them off. Because if you let them use you, then they're not going to help themselves. That's one example. But exegetically speaking, if we flash forward to Matthew 18, Jesus actually uses this same illustration in a broader context of church discipline. And so as your elders, if someone in this church was causing public scandal to sin, was a danger to the spiritual well-being of any of you, and was unrepentant, then we are tasked with a solemn duty to remove that person from the fellowship of the church. There's a church near here, not in our denomination. I was talking to the pastor. He's telling me how many years ago they had two um, older youth, about 18 to 20, who were Let's just say not faithful to what Christ is teaching in our passage this morning, to, you, to be euphemistic. And the pastors knew about it. The deacons knew about it. They did nothing about it. You know who I found that out from? From a young man who grew up in that church, who loved his pastor, who wanted to be a missionary one day, but walked away from the faith when he was confronted with that gross hypocrisy. Do you see the fallout 
from not dealing with those things that cause destruction in our lives and our fellowship. Yes, we, we pursue the repentance of the egregious sinner in our midst, and that's part of church discipline, but also the protection of the church. This is a great, a great commandment and burden which is placed on elders. Be praying for wisdom for church leadership as they do this, that they would not be more harsh than Scripture commands, but they wouldn't be more lenient than your good requires. And then finally, in verses 31 and 32, we have this comment that Jesus makes, this other saying about uh, divorce and remarriage. And there's much that can be said about this when we get to Matthew 19. We'll treat the subject more fully from the pulpit. But the reason why it shows up here is because Christ is giving a remedied understanding of life. Remember, he's not just going on and on about death, but he's setting life before his disciples. And so in verses 31 and 32, he says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a, divorce, a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or immorality, marries a divorced uh, or commits adult, uh, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is a, uh, a new but related statement from what Christ has already said about the seventh commandment. And in this statement, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees' twisting of a law given in Deuteronomy 24, which details requirements for divorce. That law, I'm really trying to keep this simple because there's a lot of complexity here. And I don't want to get bogged down because I want to stay on the main point. But you need to understand, this law was given in Deuteronomy 24 to protect women from husbands who would put them out for, for any reason. Like, oh, I didn't like the breakfast you cooked me today, so uh, get out of my house. Be separated from me. And Moses brings that law and actually defines the very particular occasions when divorce is permitted. Never commanded, but permitted. And then he puts border around that. And strict guidelines. It says you need to give a writ, a certificate of divorce. If you do this to your wife, you can never have her back. But she can go be remarried and she can be taken care of down the road. And all of that is back of this statement that Jesus makes. Because the Pharisees took that and through two or three different competing schools of, of rabbis teaching, they basically expanded it to to be exactly the, the situation that Moses was seeking to address, that God was addressing through Moses. And that is that in first century Palestine, uh, when divorces did occur, they were often for frivolous reasons. Does that sound like a familiar situation to you? you know, since 1981 or two or whatever in this country, you could get divorced for literally any reason at all. It's no-fault divorce. And so that same kind of situation was happening in Jesus' day, and he addresses it. He addresses it especially because that the Pharisees were twisting Scripture in order to, to bring this situation about. And what Christ emphasizes here in, verses 30, in verse 32 is the responsibility of the sinful husband in this scenario of putting out his wife and... By doing that, Jesus emphasizes a new way of life for his disciples. As a renewed humanity, as a reformed kingdom of God, Jesus is putting before them, you've heard that it was like this. Well, I'm telling you, actually, this is the way of life. 
all, that, all those other approaches lead to death. Christ is again setting before them the way of life. In Matthew 19.9, he repeats this line, and then he directs the Pharisees, and this is where the life thing really comes in. He directs them not back to Deuteronomy 24, though that would have been appropriate, but he actually directs them back to Genesis chapter 1, to the created order of man and woman in the world. And what are man and woman tasked to do as husband and wife? But to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with what? With life. And so you see the logic of Christ's argument here, and I know I'm just skimming the surface as best we can. The logic of his argument here is there's a problem of immorality. It's deeper than the Pharisees know. It goes right down to the heart. But there's a remedy of radical repentance that then leads you to a renewed way of life. He's committed to protecting and promoting life. He doesn't want you to die. It's the beauty of Christ in these words and in this whole teaching on the seventh commandment. He's not a prude. He's not a killjoy. He's not a strict puritanical tyrant. No. He's a spiritual doctor, a wise teacher, setting before you a feast of life and delight. That's what he's doing. He identifies the spider, the black widow spider of immorality and sin, and then he powerfully crushes it before it can hurt anybody, before it can do any damage. He teaches us that this repentance unto life that we've described, that it remedies the problem of immorality unto death. There's a great problem. It goes down to the heart, but the remedy is commanded for us it's presented to us. We're invited to that remedy to take it up, and graciously so, as a gift of God, for he is the Lord of life. Now, all who come to him as his bride, as we sang in Psalm 45, they'll, they'll never be cast out. Yes, they'll sin, but as they go to him for forgiveness and pardon, he's not going to divorce you. He's not going to put you out. No, no. His banner over us is love. We sang of that reality earlier. And so trusting in him, boys and girls, brothers and sisters, my friends, let us endeavor now after new obedience in full reliance upon his grace. For his grace expressed in this teaching, his grace is all sufficient to save. Let's stand for prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.